1: You are now in the Sapphire Planet.
0: At the age of thirty-four, on the morning of May twentieth, nineteen thirty-two, Amelia Earhart set off from Harbor Grace, Newfoundland with the latest copy of a local newspaper. The dated copy was intended to confirm the date of the flight. She intended to fly to Paris in her single engine Lockheed Vega 5B to emulate Charles Lindbergh's solo flight. This 1932 transatlantic Solo flight lasting fourteen hours and fifty six minutes, during which she contended with strong northerly winds, icy conditions, and mechanical problems. Earhart landed in a pasture at Colmore, north of Derry, Northern Ireland. The landing was witnessed by Cecil King and T. Sawyer. When a farmhand asked, have you flown far? Earhart replied, from America. The site is now the home of a small museum, the Amelia Earhart Center. As the first woman to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic, Earhart received the Distinguished Flying Cross from Congress, the Cross of the Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French government, and the Gold Medal of the National Geographic Society from President Hubert Hoover. As her fame grew, she developed friendships with many people in high offices. Most notably, Eleanor Roosevelt, the First Lady from 1933 to 1945. Roosevelt shared many of Earhart's interests and passions, especially women's causes. After flying with Earhart, Eleanor Roosevelt obtained a student permit to fly, but did not pursue her plans to learn to fly. The two friends communicated frequently throughout their lives. Another famous flyer, Jacqueline Cochran, considered Earhart's greatest rival by both media and the public, also became a confidant and friend during this period. On January 11, 1935, Earhart became the first person to fly solo from Honolulu, Hawaii, to Oakland, California. Although this transoceanic flight had not been attempted by many others, most notably by the unfortunate participants in the 1927 Dole Air Race, which had reversed the route. Her trailblazing flight had been mainly routine, with no me- mechanical breakdowns. In her final hours, she even relaxed and listened to the broadcast of the Metropolitan Opera from New York. That year, once more flying her faithful Vega, which Earhart had tagged Old Bessie the Fire Horse, she soloed from Los Angeles to Mexico City on April nineteenth. The next record attempt was a nonstop flight from Mexico City to New York. Setting off on May eighth, her flight was uneventful, although the large crowds that greeted her at Newark, New Jersey were a concern as She had to be careful not taxing into a throng. Earhart, again, participated in long-distance air racing, placing fifth in the 1935 Bendex Trophy race, the best result she could manage, considering that her stock Lockheed Vega airplane, topping out at 195 miles per hour, was outclassed by purpose-built air racers, which reached more than 300 miles per hour. The race had been a particularly difficult one, as one competitor, Cecil Allen, died in a fiery takeoff mishap, and rival Jacqueline Cochran was forced to retire due to mechanical problems and the blinding fog and violent thunderstorms that plagued the race. Between 1930 and 1935, Earhart had set seven women's speed and distance aviation records in a variety of aircraft, including the Kinner Airster, Lockheed Vega, and Pitcairn Autogyro. By 1935, recognizing the limitations of her lovely red Vega in long transoceanic flights, Earhart contemplated, in her own words, a new prize, one flight which I wanted to attempt, a circumnavigation of the globe as it nears its waistline as it could be. For the new venture, she would need a new aircraft. While Earhart was away on a speaking tour in late November 1934, a fire broke out at the Putman residence in Rye, destroying many family treasures and Earhart's personal mementos. As Putman had already sold his interest in the New York-based publishing company to his cousin Palmer, following the fire, the couple decided to move to the west coast where Putman took up his new position as head of the editorial board of Paramount Pictures in North Hollywood. While speaking in California in late 1934, Earhart had contracted Hollywood stunt pilot Paul Mance in order to improve her flying, especially on long-distance flights in Vega, and wanted to move closer to him. At Earhart's urging, Putnam Purchased a small home in June 1935 adjacent to the clubhouse of the Lakeside Golf Club in Toluca Lake, a San Fernando Valley celebrity enclave community nestled between Warner Brothers and Universal Pictures Studios complexes where they had earlier rented a temporary residence. Earhart and Putnam would not move in immediately, however, as they decided to very considerably remodel and enlarge the existing small structure to meet their needs, thus delaying their occupation of their new home for some months. In September 1935, Earhart and Mance formally established a business partnership they had been considering since late 1934 by creating the short-lived Earhart-Mance Flying School which Mance controlled and operated through his aviation company United Air Services located at the Burbank Airport about five miles from Earhart's Toluca Lake home. Putnam handled publicity for the school, which primarily taught instrument flying using link trainers. Earhart joined the faculty of Purdue University in 1935 as a visiting faculty member to console women on careers and a technical advisor to the Department of Avionics. Early in 1936, Earhart started to plan a round-the-world flight, not the first to circle the globe, but it would be the longest at 29,000 miles, following a grueling equatorial route. With financing from Purdue University, in July 1936, a Lockheed Electra 10E was built at Lockheed Aircraft Company to her specifications which included extensive modifications to fuselage to incorporate a large fuel tank. Earhart dubbed the twin-engine monoplane airliner her flying laboratory and hangered it at Mance United Air Services located just across the airfield from Lockheed's Burbank plant in which it had been built. Although the Electra was publicized as a flying laboratory little useful science was planned and the flight was arranged around Earhart's intentions to circumnavigate the globe along with gathering raw materials and public attention for her next book. Her first choice as a navigator was Captain Harry Manning, who had been the captain of the President Roosevelt, the ship that had brought Earhart back from Europe in 1928. Through contacts in the Los Angeles aviation community, Fred Noonan, was subsequently chosen as a second navigator because there were significant additional factors which had to be dealt with while using celestial navigation for aircraft. He had vast experience in both marine he was a licensed ship captain and flight navigation. Noonan had recently left Pan Am where he Established most of the company's China Clipper seaplane routes across the Pacific. Noonan had also been responsible for training Pan-American's navigators for the route between San Francisco and Manila. The original plans were for Noonan to navigate from Hawaii to Howland Island, a particularly difficult portion of the flight. Then Manning would continue with Earhart to Australia and she would proceed on her own for the remainder of the project. On St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1937, Earhart and her crew flew the first leg from Oakland, California, to Honolulu, Hawaii. In addition to Earhart and Noonan, Harry Manning and Mance, who was acting as Earhart's technical advisor, were on board. Due to lubrication and galling problems with the propeller hubs, variable pitch mechanisms, the aircraft needed servicing in Hawaii. Ultimately, the Electra ended up at the United States Navy Luke Field on Ford Island in Pearl Harbor. The flight resumed three days later from Luke Field with Earhart, Noonan, and Manning on board, and during the takeoff run, Earhart ground-looped the airplane. The circumstances of the ground-loop remain controversial. Some witnesses at Luke Field, including the Associated Press journalists on the scene, said they saw a tire blow. Earhart thought either the Electra's right tire had blown and or the right landing gear had collapsed. Some sources, including Mance, cited pilot error. With the aircraft severely damaged, the flight was called off and the aircraft was shipped by sea to the Lockheed facility in Burbank, California for repairs. While the Electra was being repaired, Earhart and Putnam secured additional funds and prepared for a second attempt, this time flying west to east. The second attempt began with an unpublicized flight from Oakland to Miami, Florida. And after arriving there, Earhart publicly announced her plans to circumnavigate the globe. The flight's opposite direction was partly the result of the changes in global wind and weather patterns along the planned route since the earlier attempt. Fred Noonan was Earhart's only crew member for the second flight. They departed Miami on June 1st and after numerous stops in South America, Africa, the Indian subcontinent, of Southeast Asia, arrived at Lae, New Guinea on June 29, 1937. At this stage, about 22,000 miles of the journey had been completed. The remaining 7,000 miles would all be over the Pacific Ocean. On July 2nd, 1937, midnight, GMT, Earhart and Noonan took off from Laie in the heavily loaded Electra. Their intended destination was Howland Island, a flat sliver of land 6,500 feet long and 1,600 feet wide 10 feet high and 2,556 miles away. Their last known position report was near Nukamana Islands, about 800 miles into the flight. The United States Coast Guard cutter, Itasca, was on station at Howland assigned to communicate with Earhart's Lockheed Electra 10E and guide them to the island once they arrived in the vicinity. Through a series of misunderstandings or errors, the details of which are still controversial, the final approach to Howland Island, using radio navigation was not successful. Fred Noonan, the navigator, had earlier written about problems affecting the accuracy of radio direction finding in navigation. Some sources have noted Earhart's apparent lack of understanding of her Bendex direction finding loop antenna, which, at the time, was very new technology. Another cited cause of possible confusion was that the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Itasca and Earhart planned their communication schedule using time systems set one half hour apart with Earhart using Greenwich Civil Time and the Atasca under a naval time zone designation system. Motion picture evidence from LAE suggests that the antenna mounted underneath the fuselage may have been torn off from the fuel-heavy fuel Electra during taxi or takeoff from LAE turf runway though no antenna was reported found at LAE R- author Don Dwiggins, in his biography of Paul Mance, who assisted Earhart and Noonan in their flight planning, noted that the aviators had cut off their long wire antenna due to the annoyance of having to crank it back into the aircraft after each use. During Earhart's and Noonan's approach to Holland Islands, the Itasca received strong and clear voice transmissions from Earhart identifying as K-H-A-Q-Q but she was apparently unable to hear voice transmissions from the Itasca. At 7.42 a.m., Earhart radioed, We must be on you but cannot see you but gas." is running low have been unable to reach you by radio we are flying at 1000 feet her 758 AM transmission said she couldn't hear the Itasca and asked them to send voice signals so she could try to take a radio bearing this transmission was reported by the Itasca as the loudest possible signal, indicating Earhart and Noonan were in the immediate area. They couldn't send voice at the frequency she asked for, so Morse code signals were sent instead. Earhart acknowledged receiving these Morse code signals, but said she was unable to determine their direction. In her last known transmission at 843 AM, Earhart broadcasts, we are on the line one hundred and fifty seven by three hundred and thirty seven. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on sixty two ten kilocycles. Wait. However, a few moments later, she was back on the same frequency, 31.05 kilocycles, with a transmission which was logged as questionable. We are running on the line north and south. Earhart's transmissions seem to indicate that she and Noonan believed they had reached Howland's chartered position which was incorrect by about five nautical miles. The Itasca used her oil-fired boilers to generate smoke for a period of time, hoping to attract the flyer's attention. Unfortunately, Earhart and Noonan did not see it. The many scattered clouds in the area around Howland Island have also been cited as a problem. Their dark shadows on the ocean's surface may have been almost indistinguishable from the island's subdued and very flat profile. Whether any post-loss radio signals were received from Earhart and Noonan remains controversial. If transmissions were received from the Electra, most, if not all, were weak and hopelessly garbled. Earhart's voice transmissions to Howland were on 3105 kilohertz, a frequency restricted to aviation use in the United States by the FCC. This frequency was not thought to be fit for broadcast over great distances. When Earhart was cruising altitude and midway between Laie and Howland, over 1,000 miles from each, neither station her scheduled transmissions at 8.15 Greenwich Central Time. Moreover, the 50-watt transmitter used by Earhart was attached to a less-than-optimum-length B-type antenna. The last voice transmission received on Howland Island from Earhart indicated that she and Noonan were flying along a line of position taken from a sun line running on 157 to 337 degrees, which Noonan would have calculated and drawn on a chart as passing through Howland. After all contact was lost with Howland Island, Attempts were made to reach the flyers with both voice and Morse code transmission. Operators across the Pacific and the United States may have heard the signals from the downed Electra, but they were intelligible or weak. Some of these transmissions were hoaxes, but others were deemed authentic. Bearings taken by Pan American Airways stations suggested signals originating from several locations, including Gardner Island. It was noted at the time that if these signals were from Earhart and Noonan, they must have been on land with the aircraft, since water would have otherwise shorted out the Electra's electrical system. Sporadic signals were reported for four or five days after the disappearance but none yielded any understandable information. The captain of the ship, Colorado, later said, There was no doubt many stations were calling the Earhart plane on the plane's frequency, some by voice and others by signals all of these added to the confusion and doubtfulness of the authenticity of the reports. Beginning of approximately one hour after Earhart's last recorded message, the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Itasca undertook an ultimately unsuccessful search north and west of Howland Island based on initial assumptions about transmissions from the aircraft. The United States Navy soon joined the search and over a period of about three days sent available resources to search the area in the vicinity of Howland Island. The initial search by the Itasca involved running up the 157 by 337 degree line of position to the north-northwest of Howland Island. The Itasca then searched the area to the immediate northeast of the island, corresponding to the area yet wider than the area searched to the northwest based on bearings of several supposed Earhart radio transmissions. Some of the search efforts were directed to a specific position 281 degrees northwest of Howland Island without finding land or evidence of the flyers. Four days after Earhart's last verified radio transmission on July 6, 1937, The captain of the battleship, Colorado, received orders from the Commandant, 14th Naval District, to take over all Naval and Coast Guard units to coordinate search efforts. Later search efforts were directed to the Phoenix Islands, south of Howland Island. A week after the disappearance, naval aircraft from the Colorado flew over several islands in the group including Gardner Island which had been uninhabited for over forty years. The subsequent report on Gardner Island read here signs of recent habitation were clearly visible but repeated circling and zooming failed to elicit any answering wave." from possible inhabitants, and it was finally taken for granted that none were there. At the western end of the island, a tramp steamer of about 4,000 tons lay high and dry onto the coral beach with her back broken in two places. The lagoon at Gardner looks sufficiently deep and certainly large enough so that a seaplane or even an airboat could have landed or taken off in any direction with little or any difficulty. Given a chance, it is believed that Miss Earhart could have landed her aircraft in this lagoon and swum or waited ashore. They also found that Gardner's shape and size, as recorded on charts, were wholly inaccurate. Other Navy search efforts were again directed north, west, and southwest of Howland Island, based on a possibility the Electra had ditched in the ocean, was afloat, or that the aviators were in an emergency raft. The official search efforts lasted until July 19, 1937. At four million dollars, the air and sea search by the Navy and Coast Guard was the most costly and intensive in U.S. history up to that time. But search and rescue techniques during the era were rudimentary and some of the search was based on erroneous assumptions and flawed information. Official reporting of the search effort was influenced by individuals wary about how their roles in looking for an American hero might be reported by the press. Despite an unprecedented search by the United States Navy and Coast Guard, No physical evidence of Earhart, Noonan, or the Electra-10E was found. The United States Navy aircraft carrier Lexington and battleship Colorado, the Itesca, and even two Japanese ships, the Oceanic survey vessel Koshu and the auxiliary seaplane tender Kamoi, searched for six, seven days each, covering 150,000 square miles of the ocean. Immediately after the end of the official search, Amelia's husband, Putnam, financed a private search by local authorities of nearby Pacific Islands and waters concentrating on the Gilberts. In late July 1937, Putnam charted two small boats and while he remained in the United States, directed a search of the Phoenix Islands, Christmas Island, Fanning Island, the Gilbert and the Marshall Islands. But no trace of the Electra or its occupants were found. Back in the United States, Putnam acted to become the trustee of Earhart's estate so that he could pay for the searches and related bills. A probate court in Los Angeles, Putnam requested to have the death and absentia seven-year waiting period waived so that he could manage Earhart's finances. As a result, Earhart was declared legally dead on January 5th, 1939. Many theories have emerged after the disappearance of Earhart and Noonan. Two possibilities concerning the Flyers' fate have prevailed among researchers and historians. One, the crash and sink theory. Many researchers believe the Electra ran out of fuel and Earhart and Noonan ditched at sea. Navigator and aeronautical engineer Elgin Long and his wife Mary Kay devoted 35 years of exhaustive research to the crash and sink theory, which is the most widely accepted explanation for the disappearance. Captain Lawrence F. Safford, U.S. Navy, who was responsible for the interwar Mid-Pacific Strategic Direction Finding Net and the decoding of Japanese purple cipher messages for the attack on Pearl Harbor, began a lengthy analysis of the Earhart flight during the 1970s. His research included the intricate radio transmissions documented. Safford came to the conclusion, poor planning, worse execution. Rear Admiral Richard R. Black, U.S. Navy, who was in administrative charge of the Howland Island airstrip and was present in the radio room on the Itesca, asserted in 1982 that the Electra went into the sea about 10 a.m. July 2nd, 1937, not far from Howland. British aviation historian Roy Nespit interpreted evidence in a contemporary accounts and Putnam's correspondence and concluded Earhart's Electra was not fully fueled at Ley. William L. Paulhus, the navigator on Anne Pellegrino's 1967 flight which followed Earhart and Noonan's original flight path, studied navigational tables for July 2, 1937 and thought thought Noonan may have miscalculated the single-line approach intended to hit Howland. David Jordan, a former Navy submariner and ocean engineer specializing in deep-sea recoveries, has claimed any transmission attributed to Gardner Islands were false. Though his company, Nautico's, he has extensively searched a 1,200 square mile quadrant north and west of Howland Island during two deep-sea sonar expeditions in 2002 and 2006, total cost of $4.5 million, and found nothing. The search locations were derived from the line of position, 157 by 337 degrees, broadcast by Earhart on July 2nd, 1937. Nevertheless, Elgin Long's interpretations had led Jordan to conclude, the analysis of all this data we have the fuel analysis, the radio calls, other things, tells me she went into the water off Howland. Earhart's stepson, George Palmer Putnam, Jr., has been quoted as saying he believes the plane just ran out of gas. Susan Butler, author of the definitive Earhart biography, East to the Dawn, says she thinks the aircraft went into the ocean out of sight of Howland Island and rests on the seafloor at the depth of 17,000 feet. The second theory is the Gardner Island Hypothesis. Immediately after Earhart and Noonan's disappearance, the United States Navy, Paul Mance, and Earhart's mother, who convinced Putnam to undertake a search in the Gardner group, all expressed belief the flight had ended in the Phoenix Islands, now part of Kiribati, some 350 miles southeast of Howland Island. In July 2007, an editor at Avion News in Rome compared the Gardner Island hypothesis to other non-crash and sink theories and called it the most confirmed of them. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery initiated their project to investigate the Earhart Noonan disappearance, and since then has said sent six expeditions to the island. They have suggested Earhart and Noonan may have flown without further radio transmissions for two and a half hours along the line of position Earhart noted in her last transmission received at Howland. Arrived at the then uninhabited Gardner Island now Nukumororo in the Phoenix Group landed on extensive reef flat near the wreck of a large freighter, the SS Norwich City and ultimately perished. This research has produced a range of documented archaeological and anecdotal evidence supporting this hypothesis. For example, in 1940 Gerald Gallagher, a British colonial officer and licensed pilot, radioed his superiors to inform them that he had found a skeleton, possibly that of a woman, along with an old fashioned sex tent box under the tree on the island's southeast corner. He was ordered to send the remains to Fiji, where in 1941 British colonial authorities took detailed measurements of the bones and concluded they were from a male about 5 feet 5 inches tall. However, in 1998, an analysis of the measurement data by forensic anthropologists indicate the skeleton had belonged to a tall white female of northern European ancestry. The bones themselves were misplaced in Fiji long ago and have not been found. During World War II, U.S. Coast Guard Loran Unit 92, a radio navigation station built in the summer and fall of 1944, and operational from mid-November 1944 until mid-May 1945, was located on Gardner Island's southeast end. Dozens of U.S. Coast Guard personnel were involved in its construction and operation but were mostly forbidden from leaving the small base or having contact with the Gilbertese colonists then on the island and found known, known artifacts related to Earhart. Earhart was a widely known international celebrity during her lifetime. Her shyly charismatic appeal, independence, persistence, coolness under pressure, courage, and goal-oriented career, along with the circumstances of her disappearance at a comparatively early age, have driven her lasting fame in popular culture. Hundreds of articles and scores of books have been written about her life, which is often cited as a motivational tale, especially for girls. Earhart is generally regarded as a feminist icon. Earhart's accomplishments in aviation inspired a generation of female aviators, including the more than 1,000 women pilots in the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or WASPs, who ferried military aircraft, towed gliders, flew target practice aircraft, and served as transport pilots during World War II. The home where Earhart was born is now the Amelia Earhart Birthplace Museum, and is maintained by the 99s, an international group of female pilots, of whom Earhart was the first elected president. A small section of Earhart's Lockheed Electra starboard engine, nacelle, recovered in the aftermath of the Hawaii crash, has been confirmed as authentic and is now regarded as a control piece that will help authenticate possible future discoveries. Amelia Earhart was one of the first feminists In aeronautics and aviation, your journey is now ending. You are now leaving. The Sapphire Planet.